Alright, hey everybody, this is Dr. Telly. We are doing our week three podcast. I uh, know that kind of confusing last time because I said it was week one when it's actually week two, so sorry about that. But this is definitely week three. Uh, Sugar Hill Records and the Boogie Down Bronx. Even though we're not really talking too much about the Boogie Down Bronx. Um, we'll get into that in a little bit. So I just want you to get uh, on Moodle and get the PowerPoint ready to go. So are we ready? Here we go. So last class we talked about early hip-hop, pre-recorded hip-hop, pre-1979 hip-hop. Uh, very much a you know, South Bronx, uh, maybe a little bit in some Manhattan nightclubs. Not too, too many, though. Uh, primarily, it's in the South Bronx. It's very much, a, a, you know, an urbanized phenomenon just within parts of New York City. It's not widespread. Very much a youth movement. Very much a live performance-based thing. Now, what we're mainly talking about today is how it really changes with the development of recorded rap music. Now, if you want to get technical, the first rap record is King Tim the Third by the Fatback Band. I believe you have a sample of that. Not a sample of that. You actually have the video for that on a, on a Moodle. There's a YouTube video for it, so if you just check on that, you will see uh, King King Tim the Third by the Fatback Band. Uh, it is a very proto version. Very, very, very proto version. Um, He's, the singer is definitely rapping for the first minute or so. It's not very long. Uh, this is primarily a disco song. Um, it's got a very funky bass line. Uh, they're clearly, you know, sampling other stuff, uh, other disco records. They're clearly using, the, you know, the breaks, the, the best, you know, the best couple seconds of the, uh, of the instrumental breakdown looped over and over and over. But that is King Tim III by the Fatback Band, the guy doing it. You know, he is definitely rapping, kind of doing that old DJ version. So that is technically considered the first rap record. Uh, why it doesn't get more popularity, why something, well, why Rapper's Delight gets a lot more attention is really considered the first rap record as opposed to the first technical rap record is because uh, this does not really go anywhere. This is not very popular. This does not really hit the billboard charts or anything. This is pretty much just within... Um, a very small group. It's pretty much just done as a disco song. So that right there is King Tim the Third by the Fatback Band. Now there were other uh, records that were made for for rappers, uh, particularly for DJs. Uh, if you go over one slide, you're going to see one of those. There's many uh, break compilations, uh, kind of uh, beats. They kind of take samples of other different records, put them all in one record. Uh, to have all the DJs where you know you have all the most popular beats and the most popular breaks all in one record. Um, this was definitely skirting the line of legal. Uh, they didn't necessarily get permission from all these other artists and specifically their recording companies to do this. Um, like I said, it's not really legal. <laughs> A lot of these are bootlegs. Uh, they also normally don't have lyrics. So this is stuff that you know DJs would use. It was definitely a record made for hip-hop uh, and the culture, definitely made for DJs. Uh, however, it's not rapping. Uh, plenty of people rapped over it, but that's pretty much what the first couple records are. Now, this doesn't really upset most rappers. This does not upset most hip-hoppers, DJs, that sort of thing, because hip-hop is a live performance. Hip-hop was a party. You know, that, that's the main thing. It's basically who can pump up the crowd, who can make people dance the best. Um, the idea of going to a recorded party seems kind of lame to them, which 
to be fair, would you want to go to a recorded party? Would you be like, like, hey, we're going to have a party, and it's going to be the same party every time, you're going to hear the same thing? That was not theoretically the drive of it. Um, most of these rappers weren't really opposed to recording music, but they didn't really see any real need to do it. Um, the technology is certainly there for them to be able to record. That's not a problem. I mean, they have studios. You know, the, the music they're performing in these hip-hop shows come from recorded music, primarily disco music. Remember, uh, rap music typically does not have live instrumentation. Uh, there can be arrangements of it, but generally when it comes to hip-hop and rap music, uh, instrumentation is typically not live. Uh, when, you, when it's recorded, I should say. When it's recorded, uh, likewise, you don't have a lot of rap bands, if that makes sense, where you have, like, live drummer, live guitarist, live keyboardist, whatever. Uh, you might have it later on with their doing. I, I know that sounds confusing when it says, uh, you know, hip-hop itself is a live performance, but it's a live performance of recorded music. Also, you have to remember, there's not a lot of attention placed upon um, rappers in this time period. Way more attention is placed upon the DJs or the breakers. And those are things which don't really record too well. Like the fact that a DJ is, you know, switching the music, it's more about his live creativity. You know, is he able to do this on the fly? Uh, likewise, breakdancing. Uh, breakdancing, too, has a very strong element of improvisation. You know, when you're breakdance battling, you want to be able to outdo the other guy in front of you. Uh, you are having to have breakdancing recorded more often. You have movies like Breaking and um, I believe in the 84 Olympics, which is a bit later, you have breakdancers participating in the closing ceremonies. Uh, the rapper is not the main influence here. The rapper is not the main attention. Uh, people don't care that much about rappers. Uh, the rapper's main thing is to pump up the crowd. He's mainly to say stuff and just to get people to listen, uh, to kind of have fun, kind of do these little bits. There is really no emphasis placed upon the rapper, and particularly their content. It's mainly just to rock the crowd, perform it up. So even as early as 1977, uh, Grandmaster Flash and some of the other uh, early godfathers of rap, they're turning down offers to record music, mainly because they don't see a ton of money in it. They, they don't think there's that much money in it. To be fair, a lot of these early record deals were going to be very, very uh, meager, very, very humble record deals. They were not very generous uh, early on. Uh, in addition, there was way more money in live performance. If you could get a regular gig at a nightclub, uh, like a place like Harlem World or something in New York and Manhattan, you could make a lot more money. You know, if you become a, a rapper, or a, well, specifically, if you become a DJ who has a bit of notoriety, uh, you can get a club uh, club deal. You know, you know, you can start doing sessions at a at a nightclub, that will make you a ton more money and more consistent money. So this is something like a record, which they didn't think was going to be that... It, they just didn't think it was going to perform that well. Uh, but sometimes you can be surprised with what does happen. Because what ends up happening is that, if you go over one slide, um, this musical genre that was made in the South Bronx by young men becomes championed early on by a middle-aged woman from the suburbs. Uh, her name is Sylvia Robinson. Uh, Sylvia Robinson uh, had some success. If you go over one, uh, one more slide. Uh, in the 50s, uh, she was known as Little Sylvia Robinson. She was a little bit of a child star. Not child star, but like teenage star. You know, when she's like 15, 16 years old, she starts recording music. Uh, her biggest hit in the 50s is with Mickey, her partner. That's Sylvia and Ricky, Mickey right there. Uh, they have a song called Love is Strange. 
Uh, it's one of those songs. I, I don't have it linked on Moodle, but if you you know if you find it on YouTube or Spotify, you will almost certainly recognize it. It's kind of one of those generic '50s songs, uh, kind of popular. They're playing it. Um, that's that's her main thing as a '50s. Once the '60s come around, she does a little bit. She actually, she and Mickey tried to have their own record label for a little while uh, because she realizes early on that as a performer, you don't make all that much money. Um, the people behind the scenes are the ones who make like a lot of the money, and they they have a lot more influence. They can make a lot more decisions. And so, even as early as the '60s, uh, Sylvia is trying to transition from an artist into becoming a record uh, label owner. Uh, her earliest record labels don't really go that well. They don't really go anywhere. Uh, by the time we get to the '70s, early on in the '70s, uh, she's now getting into middle aged, you know, late '30s, early '40s, which is sad because I'm in my late 30s. I hate to think of myself as middle-aged, but here I am, I suppose. Uh, she, you know, some of her acts aren't too popular. Uh, she does have a bit of a hit in the 1970s with Pillow Talk. Uh, you see the cover of Pillow Talk right there. Um, Pillow Talk is basically her sounding very breathy over the song. It, it's not really pornographic. It just sounds really bedroomy for lack of a better term uh, kind of a romance song she's you know she's now the more mature woman talking about you know the way that babies are made and does she enjoy that sort of thing uh, it is a hit it is a hit um, it's probably her biggest hit since uh, Love is Strange but still she's trying to get this record label going up uh, I believe by this time she's with Solid Gold Records that is one with her husband um, with her husband, who's Joseph Robinson. You can see him right there. Uh, by the time we get to the late 70s, she and Joseph are trying to get this record label going. She's moved out of New York. Uh, she's living in the suburbs, living in Jersey. Uh, they're really trying to do this. They're leasing music from uh, older acts, older uh, genres, older record labels. Um, Chess Records is one they try to print out. Uh, Chess Records was a record label in the 40s, in 30s and 40s, uh, that put out music by black artists. However, it was owned by two Jewish brothers. So they lead the, um, Robinson and her husband start leasing this music. They start reissuing it. Uh, basically, they think it's a cheap way to put out some records. Uh, they're trying to like tap into like popularity. Uh, you know, the, the Robinsons, Joseph and Sylvia. They're, they're having middling success. Nothing's really sticking on too much. Um, her husband's trying to get into music promotion, trying to sign more acts. You know, um, that's artist management. That's a little bit different than owning a record label. When you're an artist manager, you're trying to, like, get your acts promoted to various places. Uh, when you're recording Peter person, you're trying to record them. Theoretically, they're doing both, but they're not having too, too much success in it. Now, the time they're doing all this, disco is starting to become more popular. Uh, disco is becoming recorded by a lot more um, record labels. It's being recorded by a lot bigger record labels. They're starting to climb up the Billboard charts. It's becoming popular with a lot of different people. And a lot of different people are trying to latch onto the genre, kind of be hangers-on, um, me-toos. This happens a lot of time whenever something, a new genre comes out. You're going to have copycat artists. You're going to have other record labels trying to come up with their own version pretty quick. Uh, within my own lifetime, probably a pretty good example is 
Um, once Britney Spears became popular, all of a sudden you have like Christina Aguilera and Jessica Simpson and Mandy Moore, and all these other record labels kind of come up with their own Britney Spears. Uh, you have this with boy bands too around that same time period. You know, Backstreet Boys came first. Then you had NSYNC, 98 Degrees, Five, all these O-Town, all these other copycat artists. And that's pretty much just what's happening with disco in this time period, is that they're trying to find disco acts. Now, as I mentioned last time, disco is popular, but there is a backlash because of it, mainly because it's viewed as very gay. Uh, it's also viewed as non-white. Uh, disco, quote-unquote, sucks. Our, it's still becoming a dominant art form in the late 70s. This is before the disco backlash when Robbins is trying to do all this. But you can see, as we talked about last class, there is some backlash for disco coming. It is brewing. Now, this is the part where we get into legend. Go over one more slide. This is where we get into legend. This is where, in a lot of things with hip-hop, a lot of things with the early days of rap music, honestly with rappers themselves, the line between real and story and, I don't want to say made up, but exaggerated, kind of tall tales, which is not unusual in American pop culture. Um, you know, the way something happened versus the story of how something happened can be different. This is not anything special to rap music. This is, this is America. This is P.T. Barnum. This is Buffalo Bill. This is Walt Disney. This is any self-promoter who kind of exaggerates a story about how something happened. So the, the particulars about what happens next is very murky. Uh, Robinson has told many ver different versions of the story. Uh, she recently passed away. Um, her husband passed away, too. So pretty much her sons are the main one. I think even one of her sons passed away. So, uh, you know, but, but even when they were alive... They told a lot of different stories about what exactly happened. But at some point in June of 1976, Robinson goes to the Harlem world, okay? That's probably the only thing we know for certain is that she goes to the Harlem world nightclub. Uh, she says she goes for a birthday party. Now, whose birthday party changes quite a bit. Uh, some say it's her birthday party. Others say it's her niece's birthday party. Um... You know, is it her 43rd birthday party or her 41st birthday party? We don't know. These sort of things, they, they really kind of switch around quite a bit. What we do know is she goes to a nightclub at the Harlem World. She goes to a party, more than likely a birthday party, maybe for her, maybe for her niece. It's all very fluid. It's definitely at the Harlem World, more than likely in June. We don't know the exact date. And at the Harlem World... She hears a DJ for the first time, and she hears hip-hop for the first time, and she hears rapping for the first time. Now, who's the rapper? We don't know. Who's the DJ? We don't know. We've heard very different ones. It could be DJ Hollywood. It could be Eddie Starsky. It could be Eddie Chiba. Um, it's, it could even be Grandmaster Flash. Uh, by this time, Grandmaster Flash did have regular gigs at the Harlem World, we don't know exactly who it was. There have been many different DJs that claim that they were the DJ. That still, uh, they call her Miss Robinson most of the time. That Sylvia Robinson heard. Um, there's really no telling uh, who exactly happens. But we do know that she hears hip-hop for the first time at the Harlem World, and she wants to make a record of it mainly to help her and her husband's fledgling record label. Remember, the record label is not doing that great. Their artists aren't doing that 
doing that much business. You know, uh, she is definitely of a different generation of the hip hoppers. She's in her 40s. Uh, most of the guys doing hip hops are in their late teens, early 20s, mainly in their teens. They're very young. They're, they're incredibly young. And she's viewed as an older generation who's trying to tap into what's, what are the kids into. Uh, that is not unusual for any uh, media company, particularly when it comes to popular music. You want to find out what young people are into. That's how you're going to like build up a record label. So once she hears hip-hop for the first time, she decides, you know what? I want to record this. I want to find somebody to do this. And so she asks some of these uh, early hip-hop artists. Uh, she definitely does appra- approach Grandmaster Flash, who may or may not have been the DJ that she heard of the Harlem World. Uh, he turns her down. Other DJs turn her down. Uh, she figures out, well, she believes that maybe it's because she's older. Maybe she's, uh, you know, because she's in her 40s, she's viewed as too old. Uh, maybe they would relate better to somebody more their own age. So she gets her son, who's in his teenage years. She gets her teenage son to pretty much go to all the uh, established rap acts, ask him to record for her new label. None of them seem too interested in recording for all the reasons we talked about earlier. You know, it's supposed to be a live performance. Who wants to go to a 15-minute party? They're making a lot more money at nightclubs. Uh, so pretty much, there's no interest. Likewise, you know, she's a middle-aged lady from the suburbs. She's not part of the movement. You know, she's not from the South Bronx. She's not uh, anything like that. And so now her son starts to get desperate. Her son starts to get desperate, and he starts driving around New Jersey to find anybody who could rap. Anybody who could maybe rap, anybody who might be interested, maybe not an established act, find somebody who can rap. Now, once again, this is where we start to get into legend. This is where we, this is where we get into the facts, parts where the facts get a little hazy. But while he's driving around New Jersey, um, either he knows somebody who told him about this guy, or he... It has been told that he was driving by a pizza parlor and he heard a guy rapping. Um, other people say it was Sylvia who did it, not her son. Other people say that uh, they were, you know, pushed this way or that some, uh, one of the rap acts who turned them down recommended this guy to him because he, you know, he um, represented a rap group. We don't know. But what we do know is somehow uh, Big Bank Hank, uh, his real name, his given name is Henry Lee Jackson, better known as Big Bank Hank. He has also since passed away, sadly. Um, he is working at a pizza parlor. He's a young man this time period. Very young. I think he's late teens, early 20s. Uh, I want to say late teens, though. Maybe a little early. Probably early 20s. He is working at a pizza parlor basically to make ends meet. Working at a pizza parlor in New Jersey. But he's also the manager of the Cold Crush Brothers, who are even younger than him. I think the Cold Crush Brothers is still in high school. Uh, Grandmaster Kaz and all of them are part of that. And basically, he is representing this rap group. He's done some favors for them and whatnot. Big rap fan. He starts kind of, you know, he kind of says some rap lines because he likes it. Anyway, not sure how this all happens, but Big Bank Hank comes to the attention of of, uh, of Sylvia Robinson and, and or her son. And so Big Bank Hank, you know, basically they invite him into the car. <clears throat> they invite him to the car, basically, hey, can you rap? He starts starting saying stuff. It's either to Sylvia's son 
or to Sylvia herself. I, I've heard it both ways. I've heard both individuals, Sylvia Robertson and her son, say it was them. No telling who exactly it is. Uh, Big Bang Hank, however, starts spitting some rhymes, starts rapping a little bit. Uh, they're, they're, they're digging it, and they're like, hey, is there anybody else? Uh, there's a guy walking around. There's actually two more guys walking around. Uh, Wonder Mike and Master G, who basically like, oh, yeah, we can rap too. If you go over one slide, you'll see the, the group of them together, the Sugar Hill Gang, spoiler alert. Uh, basically, she's like, hey, you know what? We have three guys now. We can make a rap song, you know, because all the rap crews, most of them have multiple rappers, so you, like, kind of do things back and forth. So, you know what? We have our own guys. And she says, we're going to call them the Sugar Hill Gang. Uh, they have never performed together. They they don't really know each other. Uh, most, I mean, they, they can kind of just do basic rap, as we talked about last class. You know, everybody knows people who kind of, like, you know, do the your mama jokes or make up funny rhymes in school or whatever. These are these three guys. Um, they have absolutely no street credibility whatsoever. They are not established by any sense of the word. Um, they're not a gang by any sense of the word. Um, they are not a crew. Uh, they are put together in studio by, by you know, old middle-aged suburban lady. Um, also, uh, Sugar Hill. Um, Sylvia Robinson takes the name Sugar Hill uh, that's actually a part of Harlem. Uh, a part of Harlem. It's it's known as like kind of the ritzier part of Harlem, uh, Sugar Hill. Ironically, it's where Alexander Hamilton had his house and his, and his uh, farm. Uh, yeah, Hamilton, like the guy on the ten dollar bill who later had that very popular musical made about him. Um, his his area of Harlem was known as Sugar Hill, which is ironic that Hamilton's part of Harlem is becomes the name of the Sugar Hill Gang, and later there's a Hamilton musical, which is hip hop. Um, also, did I mention none of them are performed in front of a live crowd, which is seen as very much key for any rap group? Uh, still, they record this song. Uh, they record they record a song, and it, weirdly enough, becomes a huge hit. Also, I should mention Big Bank Hank, um, during the recording of the song, he's like, hey, I don't really know how to rhyme. He calls Grandmaster Kaz, uh, basically one of the artists he represents. Remember, he's kind of the manager for uh, the Cold Cush Brothers. It's like, hey, give me your rhyme book. Um, I, I, I need, I'm recording a song. Now, there's been a lot of stories about, you know, did Big Bank Hank screw over Grandmaster Kaz? Um, Grandmaster Kaz, he was, just, you know, he was like, you know, I was like 16 years old. I, I didn't know anything about recording. You know, he just said he'd pay me back at a later date. Uh, he might have paid him back at a later date. We don't really know. However, we do know uh, Big Bang Hank, who does like the first verse of uh, Rapper's Delight, you know, on the CAS and the NOVA, that is actually one of Grandmaster Kaz's established rap routines. So it's ironic that like the first rap song that most people ever hear begins with Big Bang Hank saying somebody else's lines. So there are also other issues with Rapper's Delight. If you go over one more slide, you'll see, uh, you'll see the group performing. Uh, this is a very weird song. I, I, I mean, it's a classic. Some of y'all, hopefully you've already heard it. You, I have a link to it right there. You haven't. It's also a very long song for a recorded song. Uh, it's viewed as too short for a hip-hop song. In fact, whenever the song comes out, a lot of radio stations are surprised they play it. But most rappers are like, oh my God, it's only 15 minutes long? I mean, who wants to go to a 15-minute long party? 
it's a very weird song. Uh, you probably know the first verse pretty well. You know, with hip, a hop, a hippie, a hippie, do the hip, hip hop. You don't stop. And then a bam, 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 do the rhythm of beat. Now what you hear is not a test. I'm a rapping to the beat. Yeah, that one. Everybody knows that. But it goes on for like 27 verses. And it gets really rambling. Like, I don't know if you know this, but if you go like midway through the song, all of a sudden they're talking about like, hey, you know when you go to somebody's house and the food's really bad and it smells weird and it tastes bad and, and the beans are nasty? Which, is, I mean, that is that is a weird song. <coughs> what it does have going for it is it does sample uh, Chick's Good Times. Uh, that is a very popular break. Uh, the, the beat, do 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 that is that is a very popular rap uh, break that's used all the time in hip hop. Uh, they do not invent this by any sense of the imagination. Plenty of other DJs have discovered this beat and used it a million billion fulfillion times. So that kind of gives it a little bit of credibility. It weirdly enough gets regular 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 radio play. Like not only that, it gets a lot of requests. Like, it gets to the point where some radio stations, uh, you know, R&B stations, uh, remember at this time there are no hip-hop radio stations, there are no rap radio stations. Um, you do have some, like, urban radio stations, they call it R&B music or race music sometimes. Actually, the moniker Urban hadn't really come around yet. Uh, just black radio stations, uh, they have different ways of saying it. Uh, usually R&B is the generic catch-all term for all music done by black people. So... You do have these R&B stations. They get to the point where they have to put a limit on the number of times rappers alike can be played in any given time. Uh, most rappers, once they hear it, they can't believe this song exists, let alone it becomes super popular. Uh, it ultimately culminates as number 12 on the Billboard charts. Uh, that is problematic. We don't know how many exactly records it sold for reasons we're going to talk about in a second. Almost certainly it was the first gold, if not platinum, record to ever come out of rap music. Uh, that is problematic, as we're going to talk about in just a little bit. It becomes a national hit. Um, somehow, Sylvia Robertson and the Robertsons, the Robinsons, uh, and oh yeah, she also renames her record label to Sugar Hill Records, uh, based upon the popularity of the Sugar Hill Gang. Uh, she's all right. We're now making rap music. We're now called Sugar Hill Records. Uh, she does have some national relationships starting on. She's able to get it played across the country. This is probably why it's considered to be the first rap song. It's recorded, and it's the first rap song readily available outside of New York. Remember, although rapping itself wasn't completely heard of outside of New York, I mean, there, there is precedence. You know, all over the country, you have people... You know, talking fast over records. You have people who, like, you know, do the do shoot the dozens at school, tell your mama jokes, things like that. Uh, that's pretty well known. But putting into music was the appealing part. All of a sudden now, people are like, oh my gosh, you know, uh, I've already doing this. Now I can do that over music, and it's very popular. Some of the lines are legitimately pretty funny. Um, it's very catchy. You can memorize it all. Um, Pretty much anybody who heard it in the late 70s, early 80s, memorized Rapper's Delight. Uh, maybe ask your parents if they were old enough. They probably should have been. I'm, I'm hoping your parents were around in the 80s. 
uh, or early 70s. They, they should be. I'm assuming your parents are around their 40s or 50s or so. So they, they probably knew it as a kid. I mean, if you hear it, you always uh, memorize it. Uh, this causes Sugar Hill, the Sugar Hill Gang to, like, catapult in popularity. They become super popular. Uh, the record label itself becomes very popular. They start recording more rap acts. Uh, rap acts who previously were like, hey, there's no money to be made recording. They're like, oh my gosh. You know, the Sugar Hill Gang is doing amazing. They're, they're everywhere. They sure, they're probably uh, rolling in the bank. That's where it gets problematic. Uh, Joe Robinson. Joe Robinson had some very creative accounting practices in that a lot of the things he did weren't really legal. Uh, for instance, the reason why we don't know gold records for uh, Rapper's Delight is because he never ed- registered with the RIAA, which is uh, basically something you record labels are supposed to do is register with this... Um, it's a national body that basically decides, hey, you know, they, they verify sales, uh, verify the books, make sure that, um, you know, what the sales are for various records, then make sure that artists are compensated fairly. Uh, there have been a long problem long history in record labels of record label owners screwing over the artists and particularly the songwriters. So the RIAA came about mainly to verify things, verify sales, you know, make sh- keep, keep them honest. Um, it, it's, it's a regulation made to make sure that record labels are honest. Uh, however, to be a part of this, a record label has to join. They have to pay money to join the RIAA and also turn over their books. Uh, they have to turn over their books to an outside observer, an outside person who can verify everything. They're the the RIAA is the one who verifies gold records. They say, "Hey, we we you know you've sold a hundred thousand things. Your books are your books are clear, and because of that, we can make sure that the artist gets enough money and the songwriters get enough money." Uh, Joseph Robertson doesn't do that. Um, he gives his artist gold records, but they're not really from the RIAA, they're from him. He says, hey, here's a gold record. It's, it's from me. It's from Sugar Hill Records. I know how many we sold, even though he doesn't want other people to look at his, his books. Likewise, um, the Robinsons are known for get, being very lavish with gifts, theoretically. You know, they might give gold watches or cars to their artist. Uh, they're not actually buying the cars for the artist. They're leasing the cars in the artist's name. That can be problematic. You don't actually own it. You know, uh, you might be given, um, you know, a fancy watch or, you know, gifts, maybe, you know, jewelry or something. That's not the same as cash money. Now, like I said, this is not something invented by the Robinsons. Uh, Barry Gordy was notorious for doing this at Motown. Uh, Barry Gordy was notorious for giving fur coats and things to his artists, but not actually giving them money. Likewise, uh, he wouldn't let them see how many they actually sold. Now, another problem that Sugar Hill Record has comes with distribution. Now, get used to me talking about distribution. I do research on it, but also, this is the fly in the ointment when it comes to rappers and rap music and any rap label most of the time. You see, if you own any media company, you need three things. You need a product... You need money or capital, and you need distribution. You need to have something to sell. You need to have an artist. Um, Sugar Hill Records has that. You need to have money. Uh, Sugar Hill Records has problems with that. We'll talk about that in a second. But you also need a way to get this to distribution, get this to customers 
across the country. Distribution is the fly of the ointment. You see, a lot of companies can have ways in this time period of getting an artist, they might have enough money to record the artist, but getting that artist to consumers, getting it on store shelves, can be a problem. Nowadays, it's much easier deal uh, because of digital distribution. You know, if you have SoundCloud, you can post a link on your Twitter, it can get to customers just as quick as you know a physical item in the store. But before we have digital distribution, distribution is tough. You need supply lines. You need a lot of money. A lot, a lot of money just to ship things across the country. Ship things to different record stores. This becomes a problem. A lot of times having a hit, hit record can be the death nail for a small record company simply because they cannot grow, they cannot scale fast enough. They might have to partner with a bigger company. Now, Robinson doesn't want to partner with a bigger company, even though he's quite successful. Why doesn't he want to partner with a bigger company? Well, they might ask him to join the, I, the RIAA. They might want to look at his books, you know, because they're a bigger company. If you're in business with somebody, you want to keep track of their accounting. Make sure everything is kosher. Make sure everything is what they say. So what Robinson does to try and solve his money woes is make a deal not with a larger record company, but with an individual who happens to be a member of the Gambino crime family. That's right, the actual mafia. He gets in bed with the actual mafia, which doesn't help accounting preferences whatsoever. Likewise, it really doesn't help him when it comes to other record labels. Uh, Sugar Hill Records, and particularly Joe Robinson, get a really bad reputation of being members of the Black Mafia. Now, they're not members of the Black Mafia. There really isn't a Black Mafia. But they are partners with the Italian Mafia. So that can be problematic. Likewise, uh, the Sugar Hill Gang itself is not really prepared for the future. Uh, they are the first big rap group. They're, but... They Remember, they don't have a lot of stuff to lean upon. Uh, a lot of these rap crews do have a lot of um, you know, established bits, established acts. They've really honed their skills, really honed their rhymes. Uh, pretty much the Sugar Hill Gang used every rhyme they knew for their first song. Uh, so their subsequent songs were of middle success. They get a lot more into disco. There's not all, as much rapping. Uh, their first full album is mainly disco songs with only a few rapping songs. Uh, their biggest success they have afterwise is Apache. Go over one slide, you'll see the cover for Apache. Uh, you probably know it as the Jump On It song because of the dance. Uh, the dance actually comes from Fresh Prince. It does not come from the Sugar Hill themselves. Uh, the game themselves, like I said, they're of middling success. They're not a very big deal in the long run. Now, following the success of the Sugar Hill Gang, uh, more acts do start recording on Sugar Hill. Uh, one I want you to know about is Grandmaster Flash. Uh, Sugar Hill, however, is never the greatest place uh, to record. Um, it, it's known for not being forthright with its artists about exactly how much money they're earning and how well their record exactly sold. Also, Robinson is really big on... Um, kind of revamping her acts to be more disco. Uh, remember, disco is what's popular, and so you take them out of, like, T-shirts and jeans and put them into, like, leather outfits with a lot of zippers. Uh, that is something she does. 
Uh, most notably with Grandmaster Flash, uh, whenever you look at the message, you're going to see them in like leather zipper outfits. Uh, that is not something which they wore initially. That is something that came about because of the meddling of Sylvia Robinson. To be fair to Robinson, she's trying to tap into the disco thing. Now, after um, Sugar Hill's gang, Rappers Alike, comes out, this kind of starts up an arms race of uh, different rappers recording on stuff. Uh, the second rap song released nationally is by a guy by the name of Curtis Blow. Uh, he does Christmas rapping. Uh, Curtis Blow is from Queens. Curtis Blow is from Queens. Um, it's, it's very much designed to be a novelty song. Um, it, it's literally designed to kind of become a Christmas thing. It's Christmas rapping. There's a pun. Uh, it, why is this important? Well, it's important because Curtis Blow is a pretty popular early rapper. In fact, he has one of the biggest early rap hits with the breaks. Uh, also, his manager is probably the reason I want you to know about him more. His manager is a guy by the name of Russell Simmons. We'll be talking about Russell Simmons a lot next week. Uh, Russell Simmons becomes extremely important. Uh, other record labels come about. Tommy Boy is another early rap record label. Uh, they start recording some artists. Uh, even the godfathers of hip-hop start realizing maybe we should record some stuff. Uh, you know, we're the originators of the genre, but that's been like seven, eight years now. Maybe we should do some recording because there's no law, there's no telling how long this fad is going to last on a national level. Um, there was no indication that rap music and hip hop was going on a national recording level was going to last very long. Um, even the founders thought it was going to be a fad. You know, they're in their twenties. They're like, yeah, you know, maybe I'll get a real job. But right now, I'm going to do a fun little song. Uh, they really thought it was going to be a fad. Nobody thought it was going to be a live, a long-lasting, you know, viable option of a genre. Uh, they thought maybe the live performance would go on for a while. I mean, people like nightclubs, people like dancing. But they thought recording a, a DJ, recording rap music, that's a fad. We should just strike while the iron's hot. Um, you know, get some money while we can. They thought that the nightclub was going to be their long-term, most viable option. There was no way to possibly know this is going to dominate youth culture for so long. And so now you start getting more, you know, more artists recording, more of the original Godfathers recording. Um, if anything else, those who recorded thought it was going to raise their profile for their recording, uh, for their uh, nightclub gigs. They're like, hey, you know, if I have a song on the radio, maybe you can get me, get me into a few more nightclubs. Um, you still have this. I mean, one hit wonders. Uh, one hit wonders. At, of, regardless of their genre, uh, they can still make decent money touring around, you know, doing casinos, doing nightclubs. Um, it, it's not a great living. I'm sorry, it's not like a lavish living. You're not making millions of dollars doing it. But you know, if you do the two, if you do the nightclub circuit, you can you can pay your bills. You know, if, if you're a fan, I'm trying to think of somebody who who relates to that. Just I don't know. Um, I'm sure the Macarena guys, y'all don't know the Macarena. The Baja men, they let the dogs out. That was about the time y'all were born. Who let the dogs out? I, I don't know. Tell me in class of a, of, a, of, a, of a fad where it's like, you know, the guy who did this or the girl who did this, the group who did this, they're still able to tour around and make a little bit of money. Uh, Grandmaster Flash probably had, well, not probably, he did have the best recording career of the three. Uh, he has signed early with Sugar Hill. He goes on to other record labels later. Um, he has the biggest hit, probably the most important song of that. We'll talk about that in the uh, later, which is The Message. 
Um, it is a stunted career. Grandmaster Flash does have issues with the Robinsons. Um, theoretically, he signed over the rights to his name whenever he signed with him, which was a bad idea. So he leaves, and so they're like, hey, we're going to bring in another Grandmaster Flash, another Furious Five. It, it's, it's, it's an issue. Uh, African Babata signs with Tommy Boy, puts out a few albums. Uh, probably the biggest one he puts out is Planet, Planet Rock. Uh, Planet Rock is not really hip-hop. I mean, he is one of the founders of hip-hop. It's more like European techno. Uh, there's a German genre called Kraftwerk, which comes about in this time period, and, and Africa Mabata gets really big into that. So if you listen to Planet Rock, I don't think I provided a link to it because it's not really a hip-hop song, but if you listen to it, it's very techno, very European techno. Uh, DJ Herc, DJ Cool Herc, as actually the saddest of the transitions. Uh, he doesn't really record in this time period. Um, he gets stabbed in 1979 at a party, and pretty much after that, he stops DJing. He thinks it's too dangerous. Uh, by the time we get to the early 80s, he's working at a record store, not really doing parties anymore, uh, never really approached to put out an album, put out any records. Uh, he puts out a record like fairly recently, actually. It's decently received. But um, in the you know in the seventies and the eighties he puts out nothing. Uh, doesn't really do much in the music business. Uh, he actually gets addicted to co- uh, crack in the eighties. Gets addicted to crack cocaine. That's very sad. Uh, thankfully he's gotten clean since then, and he's he's still around. Um, actually, all three of the founding fathers of hip hop are still alive. They're still around, even though a lot of the early acts have passed away. I should mention once again, everything is so in a fad novelty moment. Uh, nobody expects us to become dominant. Nobody expects us to become very long lasting. Uh, there is a little bit of mainstream exposure. There's a little bit of mainstream exposure. Uh, 2020, which is actually where uh, Hip Hop Family Tree ends its issue, uh, talks about when hip hop is mentioned on 2020. Uh, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was a Friday night uh, news magazine on, a- on ABC. Uh, Barbara Wasser's Hugh Downs were the main host of it. Uh, it talks a little about the genre. They're mainly talking about, like, hey, what's popular with these kids nowadays? Um, later on, uh, Curtis Blow does appear on Soul Train, and Don Cornelius is super dismissive of him. It- it's really offensive. You know, Curtis Blow is performing The Breaks, which becomes a pretty popular. It's one of the few rap songs really chart fairly well in the Billboard Top 10 charts. Uh, I believe this is the one that's the first certified gold record is Curtis Blow's The Breaks. Uh, you know, Curtis Blow performs The Breaks, and then Don Cornelius comes out, and he's like, well, psh, you know, this is what you young kids are into. I don't get it, but I'm old. I don't know what I'm talking. Super dismissive. Very, very offensive of him. Uh, MTV. <laughs> MTV has an interesting history with rap music. Um, Theoretically speaking, the first day MTV uh, is on air, there is a quote-unquote rap song on it, a rap music video, which is by uh, a punk group called Blondie, uh, who is all white. Uh, Debbie Harry is the uh, leader of Blondie. She is a blonde girl. That's where they get the name Blondie from. Uh... By going around New York, the New York punk scene in the 70s, uh, she gets to know uh, Freddie, who's a member of the Fab Five, another hip-hop group, uh, Fab Five Freddie. She's like, hey, I'm going to make a song about you. It's going to be kind of funny because she hears rap music at these different clubs. She thinks it's cool. And uh, the song Rapture is a, a homage to rap music. 
she raps a little bit in the in the in the song. If you listen to it, it's it's mainly not really a rap song. It's mainly a I can't even describe it. It's not even a punk song. It's a it's a pop song. But there's a section where she raps, and it's kind of funny because she's clearly a, a white girl rapping, but she does it best. I mean, most rap people and hip hop people respect her for it. Uh, Fab Five Freddy has some pretty good street cred. But it's funny because in the video, she's talking about Fab Five Freddy, and there's somebody standing in to be Fab Five Freddy. It's not Fab Five Freddy. Fab Five Freddy was not available when the music video was filmed, so they got a stand-in. So it's kind of funny that the first day of MTV, uh, Rapture is, is, is aired. You will see the video. It, it's listed there. Uh, just skip over to the middle whenever uh, Debbie Harry starts rapping uh, to, to supposedly Fab Five Freddy, who's just a guy who's not Fab Five Freddy. So in a sense, MTV had rap music early on, but in a more accurate sense, MTV would not touch uh, rap music or music by black people. Uh, two things happened around the same time, around 1981 and 1982, which really changed the, uh, the sonic and mutual trajectory of the genre. Uh, the first is a song in 1982 called The Message. Uh, the Message is definitely... Uh, one of those songs that I have listed on Moodle, just click and watch it. Uh, this bucks the convention of early hip-hop. Okay, 99.9% of all early rap records, and still a sizable majority of rap records nowadays, are about fun times and partying. Like, if a rapper were to talk about anything in early rap music, 99.9% of the time, it's about, hey, we're having a party. Hey, we're having good times. You know, hey, things are fun. Hey, I like girls. They're pretty. Hey, girls, get with me. I got money. It's, you know, braggadocious, but it's mainly about partying a good time. Uh, Grandmaster Flash and His Furious Five are no exception to the con- uh, to this concept. However, one of their songs with Sugar Hill kind of changes it up a little bit. It's called The Message. Uh, if you listen to it, you've probably heard of it before. You may not be familiar with who it is. Fairly important early rap song. Uh, there's a good bit of social commentary contained in the song. Uh, basically, you know, I'm not going to sing the lyrics. You're going to listen to it. What the Furious Five are saying are pretty much, hey, you know what? Life in the ghetto kind of sucks. You know, there's broken glass everywhere. Um, it's not pleasant. You know, just because we're from these, you know, urban blight areas doesn't mean we necessarily like it. Uh, the song ends with him with the uh, with the uh, with the rappers being arrested by a police officer for a crime they didn't commit, you know they're saying things that uh, hey you know the police are kind of mean to us. Um, not getting into the politics of it, but uh, that's something you still hear about. That's still an issue um, of you know African Americans and police and issues there. Not getting into the to the depths of it, but y'all have been alive the past couple months. Y'all y'all know what's going on. Uh, they're, they're expressing a sense of disillusionment and hopelessness that you hadn't really heard before in rap music. So much of rap music was, you know, happy, good time. And now they're saying, you know what? Things suck. You know what? It's a jungle out there. It kind of makes me wonder how I keep from getting under. Going under. Yes, I just probably brought the lyrics in that I wouldn't. Uh, there's really no answer given. Uh, that is one thing I will say about you know a lot of the a lot of rap music is they will talk about the problems. Uh, very rarely will they try to give an answer. Uh, it's more about spreading awareness, more about the uh, to enlighten the listener about, hey, you know what, life is kind of bad. Hey, uh, you know, things are kind of tough here. 
So now we're having that, you know what, maybe rap music can be more than just partying. Uh, the second thing that happens is a rap battle. It's a battle between Busy B. Starsky and Cool Mo D, who's a member of the Treacherous Three, who's another rap group, rap crew. Uh, they're still very young, still very much in high school this time period. Happens in December of 1981 at the Harlem World. Uh, the Harlem World was the premier hip-hop club in Harlem, in Manhattan. That was the club you went to. Um, you know, if you're in the South Bronx, you're probably going to a house party or maybe a party at a you know, rec room or the outside park. If you're going to a nightclub, you're going to the Harlem World. That is the premier hip-hop destination in all Manhattan. That's your most regular gig. Uh, even though the Harlem world doesn't necessarily like hip-hoppers, they don't like the young crowd, uh, generally young people don't have that much money, <laughs> so they're not spending that much money. Generally young people uh, might be a bit more crass. Uh, nightclubs do have this sort of this day. You know, they have like over 30 nights, you know, grown people night, that sort of thing. Uh, the idea that young people, uh, you know, they, they cause too much trouble, uh, they don't dress properly, and they don't spend enough money. Still, hip-hop is growing its popularity, and so these nightclubs like the Harlem World, I don't want to say begrudgingly, but they're like, okay, fine, we're going to have more rap acts, we're going to have more hip-hop acts. So they start having nights where, you know, it's like, hey, we're going to have, a, you know, these different acts show up, it's going to be a late party, all these DJs are going to be here, we're going to have some battles. Um, that was a thing. Now, battling in this time period is different than battling as we know it now, because those battles were who could hype up the crowd the best, who could get people to scream the loudest, um, who could get the ladies to come the most. Um, a lot of early hip-hop is trying to please girls and get girls to scream. Basically, whichever DJ gets the most, whatever rapper, whatever hip-hopper gets more girls to come to their party is going to be the one who's considered the best because they're going to have the biggest crowd. Uh, same principle applies to things like ladies' nights at bars, you know. You know, women have no cover and they drink for half price. That's going to have a lot of people there. You're going to have women there, and women being there will bring in dudes who are going to spend money. Um, that's just how things work, you know. Uh, remember, nobody thought this was really going to be a career. Nobody thought this was going to last for decades. They're like, hey, I'm young. I got a little bit of money. Let's go to the club. I want to meet a girl because hormones are a thing. And that's how this all comes together. Now, the king of the early battle rapping. Remember, this is the pre-battle rapping, you know, but the pre, the, just the pump up the crowd rapping was Busy B. Starsky. He was the guy who would beat everybody. Busy B. could hype up the crowd like nobody else. He was known for being the best MC because he could hype up a crowd. He knew how to make a party happen. He was the one who could make a party happen. He was, he was a ringer. He was a guy these, you know, the Harlem World would come in, just blow everybody else out. You know, they'd have the other rappers come in, try to hype up the crowd, try to get them to yell. Busy B would come in, they would go nuts, they would yell for Busy B. Uh, he, he was the best of the old style. He had some git bits, he had some gigs, uh, sorry, some like skits, some, some things he'd do regularly. A lot of it is just him doing these improvised lines, try to yell to the crowd, get them to shout, somebody would scream, that sort of thing. Um, his whole thing, if he ever did rhyme, was like bob da ba da ba da ba da bidi bidi, kind of going off on that. It's very popular. Um, he could have become the standard for rappers. In fact, in the early 80s, he was a standard for rappers. 
just with the way he does the whole ba da ba da ba da ba bitty bitty and just saying like, hey, who likes this? Who likes that? Um, you're gonna hear whenever you listen to the uh, Cool Mo D versus Busy B Starsky battle. Uh, that's pretty much Busy B's whole stick. He's like, hey, what's your favorite restaurant? You know, do you like Blimpy? What about White Castle? Who likes Burger King? And, you know, people are screaming out what they like. Uh, he starts screaming out, what's your astrology sign? You know, are you a Cancer? Are you a Scorpio? Getting people to scream. Because that was seen as the point of hip-hop. That was seen as the point of rapping. It's who could get the crowd the most amped. Who could make the crowd scream the most, have the best time. Remember, there was no way of telling that this whole recorded music thing was going to last for a long time. They thought it will be a fad, and then you know what? The hip, the rapper is going to go back to being the hype man. So in one of these battles, Cool Modi, member of the Treacherous Three, uh, young kid, like maybe 18, 19 years old, super young, either just out or about to get out of high school, he comes ready to kill. If you look at the picture, Busy B. Starsky's on the right, Cool Modi's the one on the left. Like, Cool Modi comes to Harlem World that night with a loaded gun. You know, it's going to be a contest about who could be the best rapper. Uh, they have all these different rappers uh, who come up, you know, and then Eddie, uh, Cool Modi is, not Cool Modi, sorry, Busy B. Starsky's going to want to come at the end, be the ringer, blow everybody away. So Busy B. Starsky does his thing. He, he's like, all right, I'm the ringer. You know, Cool Modi's beat everybody else. You know, Cool Modi beat all the other uh, all the other guys, hopping up the crowd. And then Busy B. Starsky comes out. He's like, look, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna knock this guy out. He's the ringer. He, you know, he, he comes in. He, he, you know, yells about Blimpy and how much he liked Burger King. He's like, I'm gonna kill this dude. But Cool Modi has brought a secret weapon. Cool Modi switches it up. Because he doesn't start rapping about, you know, hyping up the crowd. He starts rapping about Busy B. Starsky. Not just that, he starts insulting Busy B. Starsky. He starts saying, hey, you took your name from another rapper, which he did. There's Love Bob Starsky, who's another rapper. Um, hey, your rhymes suck. You do the same thing every day. You just start talking about blimpy and stuff. Hey, you know, all these other things. He just starts tearing the guy apart. He's written all these rhymes to destroy Busy B. Starsky. And that's the other thing. Uh, Busy B. Starsky, yes, he has a lot of uh, bits that he does, but a lot of it is improvised. Uh, most of what Cool Modi does is very much something he wrote beforehand. I'm not saying he didn't improvise anything, but like particularly when you get to the second verse, whenever he starts rapping really fast, that's one of the other members of the Treacherous Three's bit. So pretty much he's doing something that somebody else wrote just to be impressive. Like I said, he's not really breaking the rules. Uh, dirty little fact about battle rapping. I used to battle rap. Uh, once you get to the higher end of battle rapping, most of the guys, they don't like to admit it, but they will write stuff beforehand. It's not like they have a list of paper in front of them, but like if you know who you're going to be battling, you might have a few lines beforehand ready to go just to be like guaranteed punchlines. This is a bloodbath. I mean, theoretically, Busy Bee... Starsky wins the battle of this, but Cool Modi wins the war because theoretically, I want to say Busy B wins the night. You know, he wins the prize. But bootlegs of this come out. Basically, all of a sudden, recordings go across Harlem and then across the South Bronx. And like, yo, Cool Modi came to kill Busy B. Uh, if you even hear, whenever you listen to it, uh, at first Busy B had left the stage. She thought he had won. 
You know, he, he thought he, he uh, Busy B later would say, and this is one of those times where you get into legend. Busy B starts. He would later say, "Hey, you know, I was I was I was chilling with a girl, and all of a sudden somebody said, Yo, you gotta come up because Cool Moody's killing you.'" Uh, what you do hear early on in the song, though, is Busy B yelling, "Shut up, shut up!" to Cool Moody once he starts really tearing into Busy B. So I don't think Busy B had gotten too far from the stage because fairly early on you hear Busy B starts to yell, "Shut up!" at Cool Moody. This is two completely different styles. And this bootleg starts getting played everywhere around New York City. And people start listening and like, hey, uh, that aggressive style of Cool Mo D, that's something we want to do more. The whole tenor of battle rapping changes. Uh, now battle rapping is not just who rocked the party the best, it's who insulted their opponent the best, who tore their opponent a new one. You know, you get more into the dozens and it also makes rapping a lot easier to do outside of parties. Like, just think, um, you know, before, if you wanted to become, like, if you wanted to battle rap, you had to have a crowd, you had to have an audience, you had to have people, like, you know, you know, you have to gauge their response, that sort of thing. You don't need a dancer or a DJ to insult anybody. Like, you could do that during home rule, home, home, home room, you know? You could do it at the street quarter. Uh, you could do it anywhere. You could just be you and your buddy trying to insult each other. Like, that changes rap. Like like I said, I used to do battle rapping back in college. And uh, if you went to a battle rap nowadays and, like, came in just talking about how hard you're going to rock the party and do you like Blippi and Burger King, uh, first of all, they probably wouldn't even let somebody go against you because it would be just be mean. But if they did you would be demolished. So what does this change? Two things. Well, in general, the message and this big battle rap between Cool Buddy and Busy Bee Stars, he changed two things. Number one, rap can be more socially conscious. Number two, battling just got a lot more aggressive. So now the music and the rapping would be a lot more aggressive. Now you start having more battles. Uh, a famous battle I can talk about is the bridge battles. Basically, uh, somebody from Queens puts out a rap song that says, hey, you know, let me talk about how things were in the early days of hip-hop back in Queens, on the Queens Bridge. Uh, rappers from the South Bronx took offense of it, so they put out their own song. They're basically saying South Bronx, South, South Bronx, that's where it came from. Uh, so now you're having records that are battling each other, not just live performance. This is changing everything. Now, it's interesting that all these changes are happening as a conservative wave is going across America. Because in 1980, Ronald Reagan is elected president. If you go over one more, you will see Reagan's uh, campaign for 1980. Um, if, his, if his campaign slogan looks familiar, it should. Uh, Donald Trump took that wholesale from Reagan. I think all he did was drop let's. Uh, Make America Great Again was very much Ronald Reagan's slogan. Uh, Reagan is able to get into the White House by promising a return to greatness, uh, a Let's Make America Great Again thing, uh, kind of similar to what Donald Trump said. Um, it's interesting that Reagan is able to get into the White House considering how dead the Republican Party was after Watergate. Like, the Republicans were dead, dead after Watergate. Like, 1974 when Nixon resigned, and then you have Gerald Ford get demolished in 1976. Uh, people thought that Republicans were never going to come into office again. Uh, however, Reagan comes in, and Reagan really starts doing some stuff 
when it comes to economics. Uh, Reagan starts severely defunding great society programs. Um, your Medicare, Medicaid, uh, public services, you know, community centers, stuff like that. Uh, things that were being put into places like the Bronx to help them out. Uh, Reagan starts cutting those, which makes a bad situation worse. Like, life in the ghetto gets worse under Reagan. It gets better for, like, middle and upper class America, but for uh, the poorest black people, it's uh, not going pretty well. I should also mention that Ronald Reagan, not very well loved by the poorest black people. Um, Reagan has fairly high popular vote numbers. He has very high electoral college numbers. But when it comes to African Americans, they never really like Ronald Reagan. Um, to be fair to Reagan, he's not like overtly racist. Like, but he does use coded language. He talks about welfare queens. He talks about deregulation, talks about urban blight, uh, gives a fairly famous speech in 1980 in Neshoba County, uh, Mississippi, where he says, hey, uh, Neshoba County is one of the big places in the Freedom Summer where, like, civil rights workers went missing because they were killed by the Klan. Uh, not even 20 years after the fact, Reagan is there saying, hey, I'm for states' rights. I'm for the federal government not messing in states' affairs. Once again, Reagan's not saying anything explicitly racist, but for poor black people, they're like, Reagan doesn't care for us. And it makes some things a lot worse in the ghetto. Now, also when it comes to pop culture, uh, the 80s are a very transitional time. Um, this, this is not the stereotypical 80s yet. When you talk about the early 80s, this is not, you know, the big hair and neon 80s that comes in the mid to late 80s. Uh, they're still trying to get over disco. They're still trying to get over the 70s. Um, still a lot of confusion with that. Over one side, you're going to see the biggest thing that happens in pop culture is MTV. MTV comes out in 1981. Um, MTV makes music more of more visual medium. Uh, music videos became very, very important as promotion and just a big deal. Uh, I know MTV doesn't really play music videos nowadays, but for most of its history, it played music videos. But it had a lot of racial issues. Uh, MTV was not unusual in this. Um, most pop radio, most radio stations outside of R&B stations would not play music by African-American artists. And MTV was no exception. For the longest time, MTV was segregated. MTV, I mean, they wouldn't say it's explicitly segregated, because, like, for instance, Blondie had that Rapture song, and there were black people in the video, but they weren't black performers. Uh, this was the same in radio. In radio, you'd have, like, you would hear rock acts and pop acts. You would not hear rap or R&B acts on most pop radio stations. This is not unusual. Uh, the first artist to desegregate, quote-unquote, MTV is Michael Jackson, mainly because he just becomes too damn popular. He is unavoidable. He becomes the biggest act, white or black, in the early 80s. We're talking like 83s when Thriller comes out. Uh, I believe Thriller is the video that desegregates MTV because it was just so popular. Michael Jackson was so big of an artist. He has so much crossover. They can't not play Michael Jackson. Um, so that is early MTV. Um, later on, you have more rap and R&B on, on uh, MTV. 
still not a ton for most of MTV. It's it's more bubblegum later on. It's more rock acts uh, as we get into the 80s with Van Halen and stuff like that. Also, and, and Madonna. Madonna's not a uh, an, uh, heavy metal act by any, uh, any indication. Uh, the general gist, though, is that pop culture is kind of having a more silly moment, a more over-the-top moment. Uh, think of something like uh, hair metal bands, like Poison or uh, Van Halen. Very over-the-top, kind of comic-ish, uh, very masculine, very white. Uh, yes, hair metal masculinity is problematic because it's a lot of makeup and long hair, but still, you, you have kind of a, a pushback against... Uh, 70s disco a lot more white people a lot more quote unquote traditional masculinity think of something like um, oh Bruce Springsteen you know Bruce Springsteen that's a very macho blue collar guy that sort of shtick Uh, there wasn't a very strong backlash to rap music yet mainly because it wasn't very well known it was still very much treated as a fad, not necessarily something that was going to have super long-lasting uh, appeal. Uh, for instance, between 1979 and 1984, so over five years, only 10 songs broke the top 100. Uh, only 10 rap songs broke the top 100 on the Billboard charts. So, I'm not saying they're unpopular, but they're not super popular. Probably the most popular was The Breaks by Curtis Blow, and later on the message it's not until 84 where you start having rap songs like dominate the uh, the billboard charts but still it's very much seen as a fad and like I said to be fair nobody knows their staying power uh, also I should iterate it was very much seen as a party thing uh, rap music was seen as a party thing uh, break dancing becomes popular everywhere uh, bar mitzvahs were a keen place of break dancing uh, you can see videos of a lot of bar mitzvahs in the 80s that were breakdancing bar mitzvahs where the the young boy... Well, no, I'm sorry, he's not a boy. He's a man now. He just had his bar mitzvah. You know, after reading the Torah at his party, he starts breakdancing. Uh, very white, very Jewish. Uh, wasn't really viewed as problematic, quote-unquote, black behavior. That is going to change. That is very much going to change. Uh, once the rap music gets more popular and the tone starts changing, uh, very much seen as a party thing. Uh, seen as a novelty uh, graffiti is somewhat seen the same way. Granted, there's more um, emphasis of it as crime or of evidence of urban blight. Still, you start having some places where, like, hey, we're going to have graffiti in the background because it's a fun little fad. You know, this is what the kids are into, sort of thing. Nobody knows. It's staying power. I, 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 I'm not trying to insult the hip hoppers of this time. Um, it's very small time. It, it's seen as still very regional. Uh, most of the rappers, if not all the rappers, are still coming from New York. And although they are getting national airplay, in some instances it's very small markets or very small radio stations. Uh, yes, they're getting played in places like Florida, California, Tennessee. You know, uh, young hip-hop or young later rappers like... I know Dr. Dre is living in California and he hears rappers light fairly early on. Uh, people in Florida hear it, that sort of thing, uh, Chicago as well. It still seems very much a New York thing and a novelty and a fad. There's no way that it's going to be viewed as a staying power. And likewise, the young people participating in it maybe a little disillusioned, maybe they should get a job, but they're not a threat. They're not really scary yet. They're not something to be afraid of yet. That's going to change.
However, that does change in 1984. This is where I'm going to kind of wrap up because next class I'll talk a lot more about 1984. But two big things change in 1984. It has to do with the scope of rap music. Uh, number one, Def Jam is created. Uh, Def Jam, we'll talk all about next class. Next week, I will go on about Def Jam. I, I've literally written a book about Def Jam, so I have plenty of things to make, say about Def Jam. Uh, Def Jam is much bigger and much more national-minded and much more willing to sell to white consumers than the earlier rap labels. Uh, that's one thing that comes out in 1984. So rap becomes much more well-known across the country. Um, also, Run DMC, who's not on Def Jam, they're the second group to have their uh, video set. Second, Black Act to have a music video on MTV. Uh, they become a very, very big deal, one of the biggest rap acts in the world, mainly because of the way they're perceived. We'll talk about that later. Also, something you need to wear that comes about in the mid early 80s and is coming to more consciousness is crack. Uh, crack is first named in the white media in 1985. However, people knew something was up in urban centers and, you know, part of this urban decay uh, in the early 80s. I believe crack first comes to America 1981. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with crack, crack is a way to cut cocaine to make it cheaper, but also more potent and a lot more dangerous. Uh, basically, the drug runners who were bringing cocaine in pretty much had a glut on the market. Uh, cocaine was seen as a very expensive drug. It was seen as a very high-class drug. Uh, but there was so much cocaine and not enough customer base that basically the, the, uh, the big-time drug dealers decided, you know what, we're going to make a cheaper version of it, which was crack, which was cocaine cut with other stuff, to make it cheaper. Like I said, it's more potent and it's cheaper, and it's a heck of a lot more dangerous. Um, I'm not saying cocaine is safe by any indication. I mean, Lynn Bias, who is the number one draft pick for the NBA, uh, died after using cocaine for the exact for the absolute first time. However, crack cocaine was a lot more dangerous. There's, it's way more addictive than cocaine, has a lot more health problems associated with it, a lot easier to die from, uh, from crack cocaine. And it kind of dovetails into the fact that uh, the urban centers, you know, the, the urban blight, places like the South Bronx, which weren't doing great uh, before, you know, for de-industrialization and white flight, are doing a lot worse in the early 80s, thanks to some of Reagan's social, pro uh, social programs causing problems, and people feel a lot more hopeless. It, it's kind of similar to the opioid epidemic going on now. Uh, opioid use tends to be in higher in places where there are less job opportunities and less services. Uh, a place like Montana, for instance, where I used to spend the summers because my parents were there often. Uh, Montana has fairly high opioid use per capita. It doesn't have a very high population. But the percentage of people who use opioids is a lot higher because there's not a lot of job opportunities. And, and generally, economic opportunity is a big indicator for uh, drug use, particularly dangerous drug use. And so what's about to happen is rap music is about to become a lot more dangerous. It's become a lot viewed as a lot scarier by the white mainstream. But that's because it hasn't really grown yet. But thanks for recording, it will. So that's going to do it for today. Uh, like I said, next class, 1984 and Def Jam.